Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer JJ O'Shea tells the story of the development of Mockers House after it was bequeathed to the state in a gift to the nation. Muckra's house and gardens, set in the stunning surrounds of Killarney National Park, is one of the most visited sites in Ireland. The house and its estate were gifted to the Irish nation by the Bourne Vincent family in 1932, and on the 1st of January 1933, it became the first national park in what was then the Irish Free State. But although the public had access to the gardens, Muckra's house didn't open to the public until 1964. Today, the house operates as a museum in which the history of the house itself and its gardens are the primary exhibits. And while this may seem like an obvious use for the building, several other proposals had been made over the years as to how the house might be utilised and its present incarnation as a museum was by no means a given. It had been suggested that it might be developed as a youth hostel, or as a civil service training college, or as a country residence for the president. In fact, Eamon de Valera was once interested in the idea of growing vines on the site. But the proposal that proved the catalyst to change was the suggestion made in 1963 that the house be converted into a luxury hotel. This suggestion provoked a unanimous protest from the people of Killarney. It was an outcry that couldn't be ignored. Dan Kelleher was the supervisor of the national parks at this time, but as a public representative of the Board of Works, he was obliged to keep his own counsel on the matter but he was clear where he stood. It was totally and absolutely uh, contrary to the ethos of the National Park, which was given for the enjoyment of the public, and it shouldn't, and it shouldn't be allowed to be exploited in any way from a commercial point of view, and that would be really going beyond the beyonds, really, to do that, you know, to be totally... And you see, what, what happened then as well is that the area probably around it would be restricted as well and the gardens probably wouldn't be developed to the same extent and maintained as it would now like so I would have been opposed to it really because it's all like because it is for conservation it's for the for the enjoyment of the youth of Ireland and the people who come here so it would be completely out. And you see it would change the whole character of the house as well, from an architectural point of view, to have a big concrete structure and annex at the back of it for accommodation purposes. Huh? I mean, it would be unthinkable, really. And you'd have all the activity around it, a big area around it, and there'd be cars in here, and there'd be people all over the place. And You could forget about the gardens, you could forget about the public enjoyment of it then as well. At a public meeting in Killarney in December 1963, Dr Frank Hillard suggested that Muckra's House be opened as a folk museum. It was a momentous proposal, one that was enthusiastically received and it since proved to be the foundation on which all else was built. Just six months later, in May 1964, it was confirmed that the request to open Muckra's house to the public had been acceded to on a trial basis. 
with only weeks to go before the summer tourist season, it seems to me very impressive how quickly the house was made ready for visitors. I was in Dublin for the spring show in 1964, and I was called in specially to a head office to uh, discover that the Department of Finance, through the ages of Jim Ryan, the Minister for Finance, he had agreed to give a lease of Muckers House to the trustees of Muckers House for one year on a trial basis. And within about a fortnight or thereabouts, we, we, we had the house opened, which entailed, during that fortnight, they were the, the basement for electricity and also to put in a cafe in one of the rooms and also put in public toilets and develop a roadway as an access to Muckers House for vehicles at the rear of the house. So when I think back on it, it was extraordinary how how it was developed so quickly. And I'm sure if we were dealing with it today, we'd probably have consultants and all that type of thing. But those days, it was free, free and easy. Of course, it worked very well. We had great cooperation, so everyone pulled together. So it was extraordinary how it was brought about in such a short time. Although only open for four months that first year, the project proved such a success that a lease was granted for a further 10 years. Ned Myers was appointed full-time manager of the house in 1965. Under his management, the concept of a folk museum took real shape as he developed plans for a craft workshop centre, showcased exhibitions within the house, developed ideas for an educational programme and a centre for research, and envisaged the building of an open-air museum displaying the traditional dwellings of County Kerry. Julia Lucy was Ned Myers' secretary. Ned Myers... I think, uh, to me, anyway, he was a man that could see into the future. There was just something. He was always... Like, what's happening today, that's what Ned saw back then. But he was full of energy, full of ideas. Um, He he got on very well. Himself and Dan Kelleher then got on very well as well. We, we, we had a, a very close working relationship and I knew him personally and he was the type of man like that you could trust and he was totally and absolutely uh, dependable and he was a man of integrity and he was, naturally enough, he was full of enthusiasm and, 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 and foresight and man of great ideas and what you call it and meticulous and reporting things as well and he, got, he, he had a wide circle of friends and everything in, in Kerry and he was a man who was able to empathise with, with people that he found necessary to assist him in any way. And he was a man who, who was able to gather around um, experts or people who would he'd glean information for and it was all done on the basis that it would be of value and it would be of interest and it would be necessary for the building up of the Folk Museum to the best of his ability. I mean, he was an amazing man and... Um, his enthusiasm to me was, was unbounded, really, because uh, in the early years, I remember it well, uh, he, 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 he studied in UCC and, and um, he, he did a BA degree and he often called me down. I'd be there with him and, until half past five in the evening. I don't know how he managed it, but he'd have to be in Cork for half past seven because the lectures three nights a week would be on from half seven, imagine, until half ten. And he'd be often there. And I said, Ned, you better leave that. I said, you better leave. I said, you're going to be late for a lecture. We'll be there at half past five. And he'd be no hurry at all. And then he'd sit into his car. Maybe, I don't know, I might have maybe a sandwich or what have you. And then he'd drive to Cork and he'd be there for half past seven. He'd be there until half past ten. And then he'd come home at night then and with a young family. He'd study then after coming home. 
And it shows the, the caliber of the man that he was able to do his work there. He was in the morning. He was a great attendant in the morning. He'd be there until half past five. And yet he completed the course in the period of three years, which normally a fellow would, would, would do in, in three years any full-time at it like. By 1971, three craft workshops had been established, a pottery, a forge and a weaver's workshop. A harness maker was added in 1973 and Paul Curtis established a book bindery in 1982. Ned was great because he gave us a, a free hand and let us at it. And, 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 and in, in, in hindsight, um, um, we, we must have been a nightmare. And, and um, he um, was constantly going to meetings, I remember, in Dublin. I went up to Dublin to train with him a few times. Uh, he, he, was, he was great company on the train. And he always travelled just with a kind of a, a Glastonbury type of a, I think that's what it called, um, a kind of like a carpetbagger's bag. He had the one bag with everything in it. And he always said to me that um, he always came home. And even if, if he was at a meeting, he'd finish the meeting so he could race down to Houston and get the last train back. And at the time now, because all my family, mother and father lived in Dublin, I, I, I was saying, you know, what's the big rush? But I've noticed over the years, I've done the same thing myself. Like the thought of spending a night above there hastened any meeting. And But Ned was, was great for that. But um, he was terrific, yeah. I mean, he was very open to ideas and he, sometimes he hadn't got a clue what we were doing or going about and he, he, he'd say well go with it and we'll see He made you feel as if whatever little thing that you were doing that was important regardless of what it was whether it was you know typing or making a scarf or whatever that that was all most important to the whole thing like no matter what it was that you know you were important and whatever you're doing is very important to what we're trying to achieve here to developments within the house, advances were also made in the gardens and grounds. By the time Park Superintendent Cormac Foley joined the team in 1971, the rockery, the sunken garden and the stream garden were already significantly restored. They were pretty good. They were pretty good because um, the Dan Kelleher had, had put a lot of, of, of new work into, into this in the, in the preceding years, in the 60s. And uh, I believe when, when Dan often told me that when he came, the place was in, 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 in serious poor condition because it had been overrun with the sheep farm, or the sheep trials that were going on here by uh, Forrest Luntish. And, and uh, there was intensive f- farming of, of, for crops all over the place. And uh, in, in, in the wall, where the present wall garden of the Malone Conservatory and that area which were the wall gardens, they had been devoted almost to commercial production of, of all kinds of things. I remember when I came out, there was rhubarb and fruit bushes all over the place, and they had been, the concept was to grow these things, to sell them, to make money, to pay for the, the work, to pay for the estate. And a lot of that was had to be phased out. But the gardens themselves were, had come, had, had improved an awful lot, and it was a question of Improving the the plant collections and the details with with a tremendously dedicated workforce that time. There were some great people. The staff would also represent Muckras House in community events such as the St Patrick's Day parade. 
Several times now, Muckers House, we didn't be involved in everything. So the Jarvie Parade we were involved in and the Patrick's Day Parade was a big thing. So in 82, 3 and 4 and 5, I think, I was involved in the, we'll say, the committee. The committee was always the same six people because there was only 20 people here anyway, at max at that stage. And so we had to put on a float for the Patrick's Day Parade. But I think in 1983, um, the month before the Patrick's Day Parade, Shergar was abducted by the IRA and it was a huge story. And we had a pantomime horse up here in this very room. And there was also several old IRA uniforms. So it was a gimme that we were going to have Doral going, letting on, denying that they'd taken the horse. And then the horse would come around the corner afterwards. And Mike Casey was the basket maker here at the time. And myself and Mike Casey put on welly boots and we were the legs and we were the pantomime horse. And we got a little jockey's cover with Shergar written on it and a little jockey's hat and things in Killarney and put them on it. Now the horse was an atrocious old thing. It was done for, a, I think, a Douglas player or something like that back in the 50s. But it was a huge hit because we kept adding to it for instance the potters decided that they could make all this horse dung out of pottery clay so that the horse at the market cross would drop this and this went down a bomb with the kids of course you know but the we had a truck and we had um, all these people in the truck looking for Shergar and then we had the Ra coming on denying that there was anything to do with them and, and then we had you know it was grand until the horse appeared and when the horse appeared a cheer would go up and so uh, we came racing around the corner from the bottom of Hen Street Plunkett Street with the horse uh, with the welly boots on and the jockeys thing and all and it was it was great crack and it really was and uh, we won a prize and um, and then all out on the back of the tractor again all back out to Muckers house to take the whole thing and put it back again but then um, it was it was great fun all the early achievements in Muckers house were made against a backdrop of very limited funds and every possible penny had to be saved, as illustrated in this account from Anne Tagney. President Hillary was due to visit Muckras House on the 14th of June 1983 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the opening of Killarney National Park and to open the exhibition of the priceless manuscript The Annals of Inishfallen, which were newly arrived with much security from the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Head guide Antagne was to greet the President and show him the annals, and she was kitted out in a brand new suit for the event. A green suit was specially fitted out for me with Muckers House tweeds, so um, Maura Braston picked out the tweed and then I was sent off to Mrs O'Sullivan, who was up near the Friary, to get the suit made. It was made to measure, and um, so and then I got my white blouse and everything. So then they talk about cutbacks now, but that time, when the, when the president was gone, I had to return the suit, and the suit was sold over in the craft shop. And people might think I'm joking, but it's true. And it was for sale a lot for a good many months over there because they found it very hard to get somebody the shape of myself. Uh, but eventually it was sold. It was up over on a mannequin for many months. And I'd pass and I'd say, Maura, you still have my suit. And she said, yes, it will eventually be sold. And it was sold. So they talk about cutbacks. There was nothing, <laughs> nothing like that would happen now, I don't think, under health and safety and all that. <laughs> but I remember the day the president arrived, I was preparing my speech for him. There was an introductory speech with a little bit of Irish and everything. And he came in and when I saw him, I got the biggest fright because... I think it was the first time I saw, you know, limb like that. And uh, I, I went to open my mouth to talk and I could hardly talk. But eventually I got him around. But there was such a crowd in the hall that day. The excitement, the crowd and the annals. And then people 
there was great anticipation, I think, about the president and especially the people wanted to see the annals. They wanted to see the annals, to get up and see the annals. That exhibition was only one of several glass case styled exhibitions showcased in the house. Others included an exhibition on filmmaking in Kerry in the early part of the 20th century, another on maps from Ireland, an exhibition of Irish bed covers and a very popular GAA centenary exhibition in 1984. In addition, the trustees had initiated an ongoing ambitious project in 1980 for the recording and collecting of Kerry music, song and dance. Ned Myers and fellow trustee and journalist Ian O'Leary were the instigators behind this very valuable archive. Dr Catherine Foley. Ned Myers and Ian O'Leary were two marvellous men. They were the inspiration behind the collecting project. And their dream was really to collect for posterity traditional music, song and dances of the elderly people of Kerry. Ned used to say at the time he felt that a lot of the older traditions were disappearing because of modernity. And they just wanted it collected to be put into this museum here in Mockers House. And they wanted it to be made available to the public. And so we were trained by Tom Munley. And we were given, you her reel-to-reel tape recorders and um, a wine hard-covered folder. And within that there were manuscript paper and sheets of paper in which we could write comments, but it was really to transcribe the music, the song, and the dancing, really. Another initiative undertaken in the grounds of Muckras House was the development of the Arboretum and its magnificent collection of camellias. The, the, the actual site chosen for the Arboretum, which was known as Drumrower, and that was the Drumrower field, that was chosen because it had a very rich and, and very deep um, soil created by the, the glacier and it was very, very... Uh, fertile field. It was known in the old estates, in the old estate days here in Muckras, as being a very um, good arable field for growing all kinds of cereal crops. And uh, so it, it had a reputation of being very, very good soil. Um, in addition to that, the the, the, tree, the plants that needed to be cultivated were, were, there, were, there was a certain group of them, largely the rhododendron family and the camellias, uh, plants that needed shade and shelter and also needed very acidic soil in, in, in woodland setting. So it was decided to, to devote um, a section of woodland adjoining the gardens for that part of the arboretum. So in reality, the arboretum was comprised of two halves. You had the open field, a drumrower field, which was to serve all the bigger trees that needed very rich, deep uh, soil. And and then you had the, uh, the, the woodland portion, which is roughly another 15 or 20 acres of beneath the canopy of an existing woodland, an estate woodland of oak trees and pine trees and so on, that had very acidic soil. And um, that was... That was 
chosen then for all the shade and shelter-loving plants. Uh, I remember the late Aidan Brady always being envious of our our growth rates here in the, in the woodland section, particularly things like the camellias. It's a huge collection of camellias, so huge that we 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 virtually stopped collecting them. At that back in the eighties, we had been planting them right through, and we I, I think we had something heading for up to upwards maybe of 200 different varieties of camellia in the collection now and we stopped other than very very special ones but, uh, and the, the late Aidan Brady of, of Glasnevin Botanic Gardens we used to be very envious he said how are you able to get your camellias but they happened to have the perfect combination of site and soil the trustees received a traumatic blow in October 1986 with the sudden death of Ned Myers. As a man of immense energy, integrity and foresight, he'd been largely responsible for the success of Muckras House. His loss was sorely felt. I remember the day well. it was one of these momentous occasions that you would like to forget about, really. He came out to set Sunday morning with his wife and... Uh, there was some exhibition after being put on upstairs and he came to see it on a Sunday, which was quite the norm. He'd come on a Sunday if he missed, if he was travelling during the week or something. And he came and Sheila stayed at the reception desk with us and he went upstairs to look at the exhibition. So then a couple of hours later, we just got a phone call to say he died. So it was a horrific day for us all. Horrific. It was absolutely unbelievable and devastating. I was at home. It was a Sunday evening, I think, around six o'clock. Of course, he was a big GA fan and very involved with the GA and all his sons. And the phone rang and it was John Cahill and Julie. He says, I've, I've bad news. And I was kind of saying, John Cahill, ring him, you know. And uh, Ned Myers, he said, has I couldn't show you. How could I believe it? He was only 49 years of age and he dropped it at a football match. It was just shocking. And everybody just thought then and there when we came into work in the following morning, I think it was a Sunday probably, and a Monday, like, what's going to happen now? Ned is gone. Ned was everything kind of thing, do you know? How is, do you know, how is it all going to happen or what's going to happen or whatever? We just couldn't believe it. We were all in shock for a long time. Numbers of visitors had been falling and this was a challenging time. Everybody just continued on with what they were doing and probably doing it better and maybe more conscious of the fact kind of, um, you know, this is what we're doing and it was for Ned, they were kind of doing it for Ned and that we'll continue on and we'll do it as good as we can and if not better. But we all did, we all did our, you know, we kind of clubbed together and kept, going as best we can. Kept the show on the road, I suppose, as they say. The craft workers felt particularly vulnerable. We all realised that um, we were on a sticky wicket because I think that what would have happened was they would have closed down all the crafts, uh, I would say, because it was costing them a fortune. But instead, what we did is we just went for it. And um, I think, now, I could be contradicted, but I think one of the ideas we, we decided we would do would be uh, that we would go ball-headed for a showcase in Dublin, which was an infancy at the time, that it was an opportunity to look for new markets. Um, I did it for about 10 years. Uh, it wasn't particularly good for bookbinding, but it was the making of John in the weaving, for instance, 
which has been the establishment of all the business he's got since. But we did do that show ourselves. No, we were very amateurish at first when we went to it, and it was a bit like a pound shop. But we went, we decided ourselves to go to Dublin in a van and set it up and go for this market. In other words, we started chasing uh, shops around the country and this market. But there was about, uh, it could be contradicted, I think about two years, maybe it was only 18 months, where we literally ran it ourselves and, and basically... Um, sold as much as we could and just kept all these things going because it was survival or we were gone. I know at the time I had a job waiting for me in Dublin. Um, I had a, a job, you know, this idea where you could hold on to a job for about five years, but I had a job waiting for me in Dublin. I didn't really consider going back. I, I liked it here too much, but I seriously thought that I, I would be setting up a business on my own and trying to trade myself. Like I was actually actively, I think, in the mid-80s or looking at a premises, wondering that could I get it and I'd have to move into it because I thought the binary the trustees would say look put up their hands and say that it was costing them a fortune and it was costing them a lot of money I mean I wouldn't cut it and say that we made a huge profit we were losing weaving was losing I was losing not a lot now but we were losing and several of the other other crafts weren't making a bob at all they were literally there was no income coming from them things like the blacksmith and even the basket maker what they brought in wouldn't have covered their, their, their power bills so it's great credit to the trustees for, for sticking with us it fell upon the shoulders of trustee Dr Bill Mangan to step in and carry on the work of Ned Myers. And perhaps this is a good time to point out that the trustees, then as now, operate on an entirely voluntary basis. Nothing was too big for him and no problem was was, was unsolved with Bill or anything like that. And he, he, he had a great approach and he was he was light-hearted about it. It was necessary to be light-hearted and he gave the impression that you know, he didn't take it seriously, but behind the scenes, he did like. And it was a big, it was a big uh, responsibility for him because he had a big practice at the time. It wasn't easy, like, and it was voluntary and that type of thing. But he did, he did an excellent job, and he he, he was able to manage the trustees and bring them along with him. And uh, Pat Dawson took over, you know, and rest is history. The new manager, Pat Dawson, was appointed in 1988 and he was made aware of the extent of the task in front of him on his very first day. I rang Dan and I made an arrangement that I would travel down on the train and uh, uh, he would he arranged that he would meet me. But as it turned out, when I arrived, uh, the person to meet me on the station was Dr Mangan. <laughs> he, I saw him straight away when I got off the, the, the train in Killarney and he brought me out, out to his car it was I think a silver uh, Jetta or something like that and it was covered the front seat so he told me to sit on the front seat and I was slightly nervous to sit down because there was all sorts of paraphernalia on the seat dockets and looked like there were syringes and tablet cases and a whole load of stuff like you know and I had come down in my, in my civvies and very relaxed, thinking this was going to be a, just a general sort of meeting before I do, took up my position, I think, on the 6th of June. Uh, what I didn't know was that I was being brought out to Muckra's house to face the whole board, who were all gathered in what was to become my office in all their best bib and tucker. And here I was in my jeans and very casual. And on the way out, uh, Bill Mangan said to me, he says, like, now you're going, this is a very serious position you've taken on. Like, you know, we have a lot of problems here. He says, we have a lot of things to sort out. Numbers have dropped in the last couple of years. We're way down below 100,000. We'll have to do something about that. We'll really have to get it going. And, of course, we have this project, uh, this um, folk, par folk park project, he was calling it at the time, which later became the traditional farms. And we really, that has been uh, on hold now for a long time. He says, we really have to get going with that. So there's a huge amount of work to be done and it's a very important position here in Killarney and the people are looking to you. And oh, really, I was 
said, what have I let myself in for? Uh, but anyways, I came out and uh, I met Dan Kelleher outside and Dan welcomed me and Dan put me at ease and he became, if you like, a second father to me. Uh, he was very, very, put me at my ease and he was very relaxed and making jokes and you could see that there was a good relationship between Dan and Bill Mangan and that the trustees respected him as well. But I was brought into uh, the office. It's now the business room um, downstairs on the on the first floor and it was to become my office for the next number of years and the room was packed and inside were all the ladies and gentlemen of the board of trustees I remember at the time the whole lot of them were there and they had been asked been brought out to meet the new manager I forget who was the chairman of course Bill Mangan was the chairman yes he was the chairman at the time and he made a speech about welcoming and he repeated the same <laughs> dire messages about how things were bad and how things had been going downhill and numbers were down and we really had to get back on our, on our, on our things again and uh, he really hammered home the huge amount of work that was ahead of us and they all turned into me expectantly to say something and I had never been used to speaking in public so I just said it was delighted to be here and it was a, a nice challenge and I hoped that I would uh, deliver what the board uh, had expected of me and uh, so I think Dan Kelleher knew that I was like a scared rabbit in headlights, I suppose, like and he could see that I was that I was really uh, overawed. And Dan said that he dropped me back into the station. Um, but before he did, uh, we had time to spare and Dan took me for a walk down to the gardens and he walked me out to the terrace and he looked around and he says, Pat, he says, I know you're a bit overawed by what, um, what the trustees are expecting of you, but just, he says, if it ever gets too much for you, just come out here and look around. He says, look at what's there in front of you. He says, I do that. He says, if ever things get on top of me, have a look at where you are. You're, you're, you're in heaven. He says, you're in paradise and take inspiration from that. And I've always remembered those words. And even to this day, and there have been many times over the years when that has happened, like, and yes, to go out and see where we're looking, uh, where we're working. And uh, so that was my first day. Under the management of Pat Dawson, the house entered its next phase. It was decided that instead of providing a facility for showcasing glass case style exhibitions, that the house itself, its history and the history of its occupants, would be the prime focus. And to this end, restoration work continued within the house. This was a change of emphasis, but still in keeping with the original concept of the house as a folk museum. I had this vision that I wanted, uh, first of all, there was a number of imperatives like, well, first of all, from the point of view of generating income to support the work of the museum, we needed to uh, have better catering facilities, a better shop uh, and a better restaurant. So that was uh, an objective. We wanted to move ahead with the, uh, the development of the folk, folk park, as it was called, or the folk farm, as it was called, became uh, the um, traditional farms afterwards. That was a key element of an ambition for the trustees to move, if you like, the museum or the that aspect of, out of the basement of the house uh, to a proper setting. And then I wanted to restore the house to what it's... I wanted to give it the awe factor when people come in that they would see the grandeur in which the Herberts and the Vincents had lived. And I wanted to restore a lot of the main uh, rooms on the ground floor, uh, the Queen's bedroom, the boudoir, the billiard room. And... Uh, and if you like to take away to move out the the amateur exhibitions from the house, which I think we're taking away from the experience of the house by visitors, and to display those more appropriately in a setting like we have on the traditional farms, and it then that took up a lot of the time in the nineties, 
and then moving into the thousands once we had got if you like the wall garden center was then the next came on this on, on the scene and this trustees company then was financially um, in a much healthier situation was making good money was putting reserves aside and had money to invest and then the last stage then i suppose i wanted was to uh, improve the the collections care regime within the house the um archives the managing management of the resources that we have here in the in, in, the, in the research library and to bring that up to proper standards and to have and that's why I brought on people like Patricia and uh, to drive that sort of agenda for me and uh, that was if you like the last uh, the icing on the cake in the sense then when uh, we were successful in uh, getting the museum accreditation uh, again that was thanks to, to Patricia and her team and everybody working together so to that end then we could hold our head up uh, as a as a museum within the museum community in Ireland because I always had felt prior to that that uh, we were claiming to be a folk life museum and yes we were and we were doing a lot of things but just felt that it wasn't that you couldn't be proud to bring people in but now I'm extremely proud to bring people in and show them what we're doing we've come a huge huge way in a sense in terms of recording our archives looking after them proper systems of control uh, accession all of that um and that I'm much more happier about that. That that is a, a good part of the legacy that um, that can be left here at Muckras. The building of Muckras traditional farms was a major development. The first visitors passed through its doors in May 1993. The aim of the traditional farms is to portray a way of life prior to rural electrification and widespread mechanisation. It achieved this so successfully that one could be forgiven for assuming the site as that of an old farming townland and underestimate the amount of work that went into creating such an authentic picture. You, you must remember see the site that was, that was chosen where they are today now was, was a hillside and was basically open, open parkland, part of the, the open parkland of the Muckrus Demean. And it had a few internal fences, and that's all. So it, it had to, roadways had to be made around the farm, and and fields divided up into compartments for different growing of different things and livestock. And around each building, then you had little haggards and earthen ditches and fences. And I was involved in in pitching the appropriate type of landscape that one would associate with farms, farm holdings in the 1930s, 1940s. So I had to use my expertise of what what would have been growing around farmyards and haggards and what would have been on the ditch. We call them ditches down here, which are fences in reality, on the roadsides and in the dividing the fields. So I, I created a lot of that um, once I had figured out what the different thing, the hawthorns and the blackthorns and the elderberries and the different trees. And we, we actually was involved in the creation of the fences. You know, they would all have to be put, had to be made out of earth. A lot of the earth that had been removed from making the roadways was stacked up to make the, the ditches or the fences. And then I, I planted them. And I remember one of the concepts that I had to, I had to figure out when we came to planting, I think like a lot of hawthorn and, and, and blackthorn on, on the ditches, 
where would one plant them? Would you plant them on the very top, the centre line of the ditch or the fence? Or should they be on the outer half or the inner half? And I had come across a reference that um, that there, there were diff there were three different options, and all three options were were in use in in different farms. And I started studying it, and I I remember <laughs> I used to I used to do a lot of my studies out the window of the train going to Dublin, up and down up and down to Dublin fairly regularly, and I'd studying hawthorn hedges in the Midlands, and I I suddenly clicked that. It was correct. In some places, the, the fences were, or the hawthorns were dead centre. In more cases, they were on the outer face. And in more cases, they were on the inner side. And I, I, we discovered anyway that it all had to do with livestock and your, your animals. It had to do with whether you wanted to keep them in or keep other ones out. And if you wanted to keep your own ones in, you planted on the inner face. And if you wanted to keep the other guys out, you planted on the, that side. And if it were a boundary between two farms, you planted in the centre. And it's something we've completely forgotten. It's forgotten by, by, by people. But it's when you look at it closely, I think the ones, the ones along, the, along the roadsides are on the outer faces, on the roadside faces, which in theory would be to keep Wandering animals on the road, keep them breaking in. You know. they're they're a mixture. We try to preserve that that theory. But these were some of the finer points, and especially around the buildings themselves. Then there was, you know, you found there were certain things that you would always find near a farmhouse or near an outbuilding, like an elderberry bush or an old fuchsia, some wild roses. Would, these are the kind of things that we went to quite a lot of trouble to put in place the odd ash tree you know, to provide an ash plant or a sally tree for sallies. Um, various people, some of the, because of course the, the buildings in, in, in the traditional farms were modelled on buildings in the Barleymount area and old farms. And some of the old people, or the older chaps from there were, were well known to us. Um, Mikey O'Connor and a few of these. And they, these guys were... A tremendous knowledge of, of of rural rural matters, and they carried all of this tradition stuff with them anyway. You know, the use of different trees and shrubs and herbs, and potatoes and all these things. House Library is responsible for overseeing the protection and care of the artefacts on display in Muckras House and the traditional farms. In 2001, an invitation was extended to the Museum of the Year Awards since the library had been entered in the Best Collections Care category. But the ceremony was in Belfast and the date clashed with an event at Muckras House. Research and Education Officer Patricia O'Hare. 
So we had been assessed, uh, the assessors had come here and assessed us, and we never thought we'd win. So um, I hadn't a notion of going up, the, the awards were on in Belfast in Stormont, and uh, I hadn't a notion going up because I felt it was far more important that I be at the training day here for the accreditation. And so Toddy, my colleague Toddy Doyle, um, manager of the traditional farms, I, I don't know, did I ask him or was he in going to be in Dublin anyway or something like that? But anyway, Toddy was nominated as the person who would go up to Stormont that day and collect, you know, and be there for the, we felt it was bad to enter the competition and not have a representative there. So anyway, I didn't think much about it and uh, Toddy set off and uh, the training day went on. And I always remember Neilis, one of the farm staff, um, halfway through the morning, um, coming up to me during a break in the training session and saying to me, oh, Toddy's going to kill you. And I said, what? You had the wrong day. You had the wrong day. The awards aren't being announced till tomorrow. <laughs> so Toddy had gone up to Stormont from Dublin on the train on the wrong day and he had to come back down again. I remember thinking, oh my God, he's going to chew me out of it. But anyway, fair dues to him. The next day, he set off from Dublin again, back up to Stormont <laughs> for the awards. When I think about it now, it was funny. And thankfully, I mean, so unexpectedly, at least the library did receive the Best Collections Care Award because at least it made the double journey some way worthwhile. <laughs> the library also undertakes research, educational and outreach programmes on behalf of the trustees. It's currently behind an oral history project to preserve the memories of the trustees and the staff. In fact, this radio programme grew out of that project. A regular visitor to Muckra's house over the years was Billy Vincent, whose family had donated the house and estate to the nation. We became very friendly in, in latter years. Uh, I was in awe of him in the beginning because... Uh, uh, when he would come, I think in the early years, he would have been critical of the way in which the state had looked after the the, the, the gardens, particularly in the house. And uh, every time he would have come to Ireland uh, in the 70s and 80s, he would always call in to the chairman of the Office of Public Works in Dublin, Stephen's Green, and he'd lambast them about the state of the rockery or the state of the house, and they weren't really investing in the, the estate, and he would be very cross. And so there was always that fear that he was like a kicker or an inspector coming, and you were always worried about what he would think. And, uh, I mean, and now I know him, and I mean, he was a very kind, a very gentle man, but at the time I was slightly afraid of him, like I would, and he would always come in and he'd say, where's Kelleher, or where's Foley, or where's Dawson? He's always referred to us as, in our surnames. And... Uh, but I got to know him very well after that. and uh, But even so, I, he'd always say to me, call me Billy, but I could never could. Uh, he was always Mr. Vincent to me. And uh, uh, I was very impressed with um, how pleased he was uh, with the numbers and the way the house was being developed and the people were actually traipsing through what was his family home. Um, I would have thought that he might be a bit irritated or annoyed to see school groups going through and people talking loudly and all of that but he was 
delighted with it. Uh, he, he used to say that that was exactly what he wanted and what his father wanted. He wanted the, the young people to come and uh, to be a garden of friendship. Um, I do remember that it was quite poignant at times. I remember him one time telling me the story of when um, he learned that he had to leave Mocracy. He said that he was, um, he was a young boy and he said that his father brought himself and his sister Rosie into the dining room and he said there was a small table there. I think that the main dining table had been folded up and they used to use it as a breakfast table. And he said his father poured himself a glass of whiskey and he sat them down and he, he told them that they were going to have to leave Muckras. And he said there were tears in his eyes. And he said that we couldn't understand why we had to leave Muckras. Uh, it was our home. Uh, but he said, uh, yes, we had to leave. And uh, it was a very sad time because he grew up here and he was friendly with all the the the... the, the people that worked on the estate uh, he would have been very friendly with Danny Cronin and James Mulligan and all those people and it was his childhood home and uh, he was being told he'd had to leave it and uh, I suppose he probably didn't understand the, all of the, the financial side of it or the reason why his grandfather uh, didn't want to, to be associated with Muckras or didn't want you know was so upset when his mother died he was uh, always very interested in what was going on and very interested in uh, in the, the in the plans we had for the estate and uh, took a great interest actually in the development of the traditional farms as well and actually gave us some money. I think it was he gave us $10,000 as a donation himself. And I do remember the last time that I uh, met him face to face was at his 90th birthday party. I uh, was lucky enough to be asked uh, to join him and his family in Switzerland um, for that. And uh, I do remember him uh, being very complimentary not just to me, but to the Board of Trustees and the staff and everybody at what had become of Muckras and he felt that his father would have been very, very pleased and he said that he wasn't always that uh, happy with the way the state had looked after and he would have been cross with them, as he said himself, I would have been cross. Uh, but he now thought that Muckras was in a brand uh, coming onto a new way and he was very, very pleased. So I think I think in that respect, uh, he died a happy man and that uh, his beloved Muckras was in good hands and uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue to keep it in good hands in the years ahead. A Gift to the Nation was produced and presented by JJ O'Shea and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.